0: Welcome to the Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary.
1: Welcome to the Table. We discuss issues of God and culture. I'm Darrell Bach, Executive Director for Cultural Engagement at the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. And my guest today is Gabe Lyons. Welcome, Gabe. Thanks, Darrell. Have you? Um, And our topic is kind of everything floating around millennials and what's happening in our world and in our culture. And uh, Gabe has been here for a conference called Prone to Wander that's focusing on millennials and nuns. And we're not talking about, as you said, Catholic sisters. So we're talking, that's N O N E S. And uh, Gabe, why don't you start off by telling us uh, both what you do and how you got into what you're doing these
2: days? Well, thanks, Darrell. It's great to have this conversation with you. It's important, and, and the work that you're doing is so important to educate so many church leaders. So I'm excited to. Be a part of the conversation with you, and you know, for me, this started really when I was 25 years old, and one day woke up, and it was so blatant and obvious to me that my friends, 25-year-olds, this generation, were not interested in the ideas of the Christian faith. Uh, pretty outright, were rejecting it weren't interested in talking about it, and it was a clear problem that it felt like there wasn't great diagnosis for. Mm-hmm. Everybody was sort of burying their head in the sand and and hoping this figures itself out, or that everybody will mature and get older and all of a sudden become conservative Christians again. <laughs> and I think for me, it was it was I was understanding like that's not where this is going. There's mm-hmm. something more significant at play, and began in, at that time to start to dig into that and try to understand what's really happening with the next generation and how do we help them. Uh, as christians have confidence that the christian faith actually has a, has a lot to say about the current moment that we're in but also to non-christians to understand how to approach them in a, in a way that uh, maybe a lot of our assumptions were wrong in the last couple of decades about how to engage with a non-christian. Okay, so we'll get right down to it here. Um so tell us where where have
1: we where have we been going and where's the disconnect? Where where wh- why is it that
2: this has been going on? Well, I think what we find is that many David Kinnaman and I, back ten years ago, did a research project uh, that led to a book called UnChristian. But that pretty well laid out that that the next generation perceives the Christian faith as being very judgmental, too political, meaning right wing politics oriented, um, only interested in converting people and proselytizing, anti gay. Uh, so many negative perceptions they just associated with the idea of being Christian. And so it, it only made sense that over this past decade, it's continued to play out as they've gotten older, that they just have negative views about the Christian faith in general. Uh, the second thing that's been happening, though, is that the next generation of millennials now – are finding it very easy to disassociate from faith and religion at all. Now mm-hmm. some of that can be chalked up to the culture they've inhabited that sees religion as a bit of a pariah and a negative within our communities and cities and life and see it as a judgmental sort of source of shaming people versus a life-giving source and generative for our communities. Um, but the other would be in some cases their parents were were very hands-off when it came to the faith discussion and religion in general. Mm. Um, they didn't want to use dogma to convince their children to believe the narrative that they had believed because in this new Western American moment that we're in, uh, there's a lot of value given to open to all ideas and all expressions. And so parents really stepped way back from encouraging their children towards a specific path, and I think we're seeing some of the fruit of that. So So that means that we're in a situation where
1: the nuns, if I can say it that way, yeah. are growing. Yep. In significant numbers, and the church is wrestling with um, how does this? How did this happen? And and is there any way to to stop it from happening?
2: Yeah. So I think, as you referenced the nuns. I mean, the statistics on that, the latest data: thirty four percent of eighteen to twenty two year olds. Don't identify with any religion. Um, it's twenty percent of all adults, so one in five of adults that don't associate with religion. And the opportunity there is when you dig into that research, you recognize there the significant number of them still believe there is a god, mm-hmm. um, still desire some sense of spiritual formation or transcendence, and yet. They're not finding the church as the place that would ever lead them towards that. They're rejecting the church. And so one of the lessons for the church uh, is to think through again, as we always have to do generationally, what are some of our methods that we've basically institutionalized that may not be aligned with what Scripture's ever taught or what we ought to be doing, but it's just something that we do, whether it's our liturgies and how we think about a church service Mm -hmm. um, to literally how we accentuate teaching and preaching and, and how we think about those topics and when we're not on point and doing something in a way where uh, we're communicating uh, the gospel and we've started to replace the gospel with our own sort of um, practices and things that don't relate to a new generation, they outright reject that. And so the church can learn from that and ask ourselves the questions, what are we doing wrong? Where have we gotten off track here, either in our teaching the- theology or in our practice, um, and then do the hard work of saying where can we reform? Um, and then the second piece of this, and Daryl's a long answer because it's a complicated, yeah, sure, bit of a mess that yeah. we're trying to work our way out of, um, is that we also have to trust that God's faithful with a new generation, that it's not all up to us being clever Mm -hmm. and trying to come up with new methods and methodologies uh, to reach people, quote, unquote, but that there's something actually very true about the Spirit of God moving throughout every generation and that some of it is a conviction back to ourselves of what are the lives we're living as Christians? Mm -hmm. Are we really living out the good news and the gospel, especially in American Christianity, in such a way that a new generation who has to ask these big questions would actually find God here? Um, versus finding something that doesn't actually feel like what they would think God and Jesus would be like. Yeah, and 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 you do something that,
1: that resonates very much with things that I've also done in my own writing, and that is, you talk about the difference between the half gospel and the whole gospel, and I think this is a extremely important discussion. The way I like to talk about it is to say, when you make the gospel a transaction and people check a box and they say, okay, I've got the heaven thing taken care of and that's it, so I gave, in effect I gave it the office and I don't have to worry about it again until I meet up with God, you've got this huge gap that ends up being in the middle. And that's the half gospel. That's Jesus dying for sin, which certainly is a part of the story, an important part of the story. In fact, it's the launching point in many ways mm-hmm. for aspects of the story but the story itself is bigger talk a little bit about that because i think that's an important piece
2: well that's what i discovered i mean in my own journey of trying to learn and understand what's been happening with the church over the last couple hundred years was was this recognition especially in the last century that dominant amongst evangelical-type teaching and and talking and instruction has been this half story that you described. Mm-hmm. Um, very interested, and I think this has been influenced by enlightenment thinking. I think it's also been a result of uh, modern thinking, which is the most transactions, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. we can get at the quickest pace produces the best result. And mm-hmm. so we see um, crusades taking place and all kinds of great things that, that are good. But where tons of people decide they're going to follow follow Christ and raise their hand and accept Jesus as their personal Savior, but have no idea of how that's going to play out in their daily life. Yeah, I did the decision, but where does the decision take me? Yeah, and so we look at all the conversions that have happened in American life over the last couple hundred years. You look from the Second Great Awakening even to now, and we have huge conversion growth amongst the Christian faith up until the early '80s. That's mm-hmm. when that's when uh, that that percentage started to drop off, and yet cultural influence declined. Mm-hmm. You know How is that possible? It's only possible if we've left off what I would call the bookends of this full story. The first part we find in Genesis 1 and 2, the creation part of the story, that mm-hmm. there is a good design to this world that every human being is made in the image of God, meant to bear witness to, to who they've been designed after. Mm-hmm. Um, but that sin, so the fall part, the second part of the story, distorts all that. It makes us actually Disordered, and we go after things that God never wanted us or intended us to go after. Mm-hmm. Um, and then only through Christ can we be redeemed, as you mentioned, through the cross and His resurrection, and our belief and acceptance of that gift of grace. But then there's this fourth part of the story, the final part of the story, that we're called to be a part of, partnering with God to renew all things, to be a part of reconciling, as Second Corinthians five eighteen describes that we've all been given the ministry of reconciliation. So the challenge I think for the church today is to get our teaching right, number one. Mm -hmm. If we're teaching people about just a vertical relationship with Christ and we're kind of hanging on as the world as we see the world start to slip we go, man I can't wait to get to heaven one day things are going to be great. We've missed actually uh, the entire point of of how God wanted us to live out our lives with our neighbors here on earth Mm -hmm. and that is to be a part of his redemptive purposes which I believe God will used to draw people towards himself uh, mm-hmm. in a way that our words and our beliefs and talking about those will never do.
1: Yeah, I mean, if you just think about the Great Commandment, it doesn't read um, "Love God with all heart, all your heart, mind, and soul, and make your reservation in heaven." Yeah, I mean, <laughs> the, two, the two parts are "Love God with all your heart, mind, and soul," and "Love your neighbor as yourself." And the whole picture of the ethic of the New Testament is clear. In fact, it's also in the Ten Commandments. If you orient yourself properly to God that impacts the way you're relating to others and it's designed mm-hmm. to give you a quality of life that's not just eternal in duration but eternal in quality in its roots mm-hmm. takes you back to being made in the image of God so that the story that you're the full story that you're talking about just so it's clear for people is You've got creation, you've got the fall, you've got redemption, and then you've got the ultimate restoration and reconciliation. Those are the four parts. And the half story is when you just talk about the fall and the redemption and you don't bookend it with creation and where, where why, the way God designed us, why he designed us that way, what he hopes our place on earth is and will be, and the fact that he has a place he's trying to take us.
2: And I liken it, Daryl, to uh, you know when you're trying to reach people with the gospel, right, mm-hmm. and we, we all know as Christians that's part of our goal is proclamation, to share people this good news story. When you tell a half story, it just doesn't make sense to people, mm-hmm. and, and it'd, it'd be the equivalent of handing a wonderful uh, book to a, to a friend of yours that you loved, but the first hundred pages is ripped out of the book, mm-hmm. and they have to start at page 101 try to figure out who these characters are, what's going on, and then just as they're getting into the book, the last hundred pages is ripped out, and they don't know where this story's going. Yeah, And yet that's what we do every day. We hand the half story or tell the story of the gospel in just these half story terms of you're a sinner, you need to get saved, and then you'll go to heaven. And then, by the way, your job is to tell as many other people that story as possible. We actually are saying something that's pretty incoherent, and people are scratching their heads, and they're going, I don't know what you're talking about. You're You're, you're answering questions, for example. That maybe in the '60s and '70s people were asking, such as if I died tonight, mm-hmm. right? Where would I go tomorrow? Right. Well, there was a nuclear holocaust on the horizon for people. They were really asking the question, "I might die tonight." Yeah. You know, no, I haven't had a lot of people ask that question in yeah. 2015, 16. Yeah.
1: Their other question is, "Why am I here?" Not what, what's
2: going to happen to me eventually. That's right. And the full story helps unpack for people why they're here, where mm-hmm. they find meaning, why, where these longings that they have deep in their soul will, will be met. And it also gives us a good explanation for why over a couple thousand years we saw the Christian faith slowly continue to gain traction and grow mm-hmm. and create a beautiful society, create academic institutions, create the hospital system, create all of these things that do good in the world um, that were good for all people. They weren't just created for Christians. They were right. created for every citizen uh, that lived on the earth.
1: Yeah, and, and the way I like to illustrate it is the contrast between I use Neo of the Matrix. Mm. And I say, What's Neo of the Matrix doing? He's dodging bullets. And I said the half story is a story about dodging bullets. But the gospel's not just about dodging bullets. It's actually it's actually about a beautiful design that God crafted us to be a part of that he intended for us to be. there's a good side to the story at the start and there's a good side to the story at the finish in the mm-hmm. bookends that we rip out in and, and what is Happened is is that it it got messed up, Mm -hmm. and and people don't have you don't have to debate with people whether things are messed up. That's pretty transparent. Yeah. So, um, uh, but getting them to think about what could be and what can be that that's that takes them in a positive direction.
2: Yeah. And I think as churches, you know, the the teachers and pastors um, have to understand that there is a disconnect in some of what we've been teaching our people as what the whole Christian story is. So to me, that's the fundamental first step. Once Mm -hmm. that's in place, you start to develop a church that thinks that way, that operates that way. Mm -hmm. You're starting to now bear witness as a community to a new way of life that's an alternative for people in the world who Mm -hmm. are saying, I'm not so sure I like where my life's going. I don't like that I feel disconnected from community. I, I don't like that I don't know where to find meaning and that I haven't experienced that in my own life. And all of a sudden this church... And and people involved in this church are having that experience, and they're drawn towards that. It, mm-hmm. it becomes attractional not because you created some beautiful service on a Sunday morning and a really cool environment. It becomes attractional because they see a life that's lived counterculturally, that's giving witness to something deep in their soul they know is true.
1: Yeah, they're seeing they're seeing real authenticity, and in the midst of that real authenticity is emerging this this attraction.
0: This episode is brought to you by the Grace Enough Podcast. by searching Grace Enough podcast on your favorite listening app or by visiting graceenoughpodcast.com.
1: Uh talk a little bit about you, you say there are three social rules that our culture lives by now. Yeah. Talk a little bit about that and then and then kind of, you know, how to react to that because because it seems to put churches on the defense of these social
2: rules. Yeah, and and these rules come from an author named Dale Keene, who wrote a book called Sex in the Eye World. Um, and what he tries to do is define like what are the new social rules? What are the taboos right now culturally? In every society there are certain ones and if you know them then you operate pretty effectively within that culture. If you don't know them and you're blind to them, then you constantly are running into these social walls and you're scratching your head like, what is happening? And I think that's happening for a lot of Christians today because they don't understand these rules. The first rule is thou shalt not, you know, do not criticize someone's lifestyle choices or behavior. Mm-hmm. So for Christians and leaders, um, many times we almost, our job feels like that we're criticizing people's lifestyles and, and behaviors because when you're preaching the gospel, It's going to offend people at the root of who they are because Mm -hmm. it's calling into question a lot of the desires that they have, a lot of the things they're trying to live out or where they're trying to find meaning. Um, And so you break that rule and immediately you're the evil person in the room. So for pastors or Christians who've tried to have conversations with somebody where the conversation focused on what was wrong with their lifestyle or their choice or with a child, maybe you've had this experience. You're being rejected because culturally, that's not cool, man. Mm -hmm. Don't criticize my lifestyle choice or behavior. So that's number one. The second one is that you're not – do not um, coerce – Uh, People to do something that would cause harm to others. Mm -hmm. Uh, And in our current moment, again, there's a lot of sensitivity right now to words and to language. And so um, I think we'd all agree it's not good to coerce anybody to harm other people. So we agree with that. What's happening, though, is that idea is now translating purely into language, into ideas. And so if you have an idea that coerces somebody to believe something is wrong – back to the rule number one, mm-hmm. that's not really wrong. So for example, if you're a pastor or a leader, a church leader that's teaching um, on sexuality mm-hmm. and you're teaching the biblical ethic of sexuality uh, and somebody in your congregation is sleeping with their uh, you know, uh, girlfriend and they're, they're not married and you're teaching this, well, all of a sudden you could be coercing your whole congregation to think badly of that couple. Mm. And if you do that, you're all of a sudden breaking a huge rule and people kind of get standoffish. The third one is... is is uh, seems obvious as well, which is uh, do not have sex with somebody without their consent. And if you break that rule, you've created the cardinal sin. Um, keep in mind, there's no reference there to age limitations, no reference to multiple partners. So, types part of two sexuality. of that
1: rule is uh, you don't have sex without consent,
2: but anything can go with consent. That's correct. If you have consent, everything goes, and that's why we would see news stories that just hit a fevered pitch of people like Bill Cosby, for Mm -hmm. example, and the rape accusations that were taking place, Mm -hmm. um, where it was all – I mean, Bill Cosby is the most evil person in our society today Mm -hmm. because he was having sex with somebody without their consent. So Mm -hmm. he broke that social rule, and so immediately that becomes the top story, and everybody feels comfortable completely judging and dismissing this person.
1: And the other side of the same rule is a cover on Time Magazine that basically asks, is monogamy over? Opening up the possibility of all kinds of sexual relationships outside of monogamy that are on the way perhaps to being
2: socially acceptable in the broad sequence of things. That's right. And so understanding these three rules, I think, just helps Christians know here's the dynamics we're interacting with and interfacing with. And if we don't know those, we're constantly tripping over these social taboos right now. Now, I'm not suggesting we're supposed to follow those rules at right. all. Right. What I'm suggesting is this is in the air that we're all breathing right now. So if you're going to question or criticize somebody's life choices or behaviors, recognize you're stepping into something that they actually feel a moral authority over you to reject you for it. They feel that they're right. You're the most evil person in the world if you're telling somebody that a choice they've made is wrong. Mm -hmm. And so when you start to get your head around that dynamic. It helps you be a little more cautious in how you approach topics. It makes sure that you're not just engaging with people many times you're not in a relationship with to have those kind of really tough, difficult conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, and it helps us, I think, as Christians just be more understanding and sensitive. To the dynamics that uh, I think we should be aware of as sort of missiologists in our time.
1: Yeah, and another thing you like to highlight is the idea that tone matters, and, and kind of in this middle of this conversation, one of the ways to kind of raise that question is to say, this is a a proverb that I think people talk to me about when I talk about cultural engagement it is, you know, people won't care about your criticism until they know you care about mm-hmm. them, mm-hmm. and so uh, and sometimes our rhetoric <laughs> breaks that rule. That's right, and it shatters it. In fact, sometimes, and so the question becomes: How do you deal with the challenge of this is where the world is? It really says, in effect, don't tread on me, mm-hmm. <laughs> okay? Uh, but you know, scripture challenges everybody for how they live. So how do you how do you how do you redress that balance?
2: How do you cope with those rules? There's a new patience that has to set in within Christians in the church right now. Um we've been so used to sort of getting results, Mm -hmm. telling people they're sinners, they need to repent and come to Christ. And and I have no doubt God's power will continue to go forward through just pure proclamation of the gospel. However, as it relates to our relationships with other people, friends, family, colleagues, and neighbors, we need a patience that sets in that says, I'm going to love this person for a long time. I'm not going to have – Uh, a goal of, hey, within the next year, if they haven't started to move towards what I believe, then I give up on them. Um, And this sort of – Patience, I think, is enduring but leads to the moment when somebody actually asks the big questions and they'll let you question those things, which Mm -hmm. is when they have a crisis. And so either a personal crisis in their life, so this could come in the form of a divorce from a couple, a broken relationship, it could come from some sort of abuse or drug activity or addiction, something happens in people, we all have dealt with this, where we have a crisis moment and we do for a moment ask the bigger questions. Mm -hmm. And if you're in their life during that moment, you're going to have the opportunity to talk about. Choices, behavior, um, but really the deeper side of that, which isn't about just choices and behavior, but about who your life has been aligned under—is it aligned under our Father, the King, or is it aligned under sort of what the world has told us will bring the results of meaning and value? And sometimes when that curveball comes, what's interesting is,
1: is the person knows you care; they actually come to you yeah. asking for advice. That's right,
2: because you built that friendship. That's right, yeah, and and that's going to take some some new thinking for people. I think the next generation gets that better than the older generation, and so therefore they're very qualified to just build really good, authentic relationships with people.
1: Well, this is a great conversation, and, and, and the reason it's important is because there is – not only is there this difference, but there's almost this generational divide about how to deal with this that's important, which makes conversations between generations mm-hmm. tricky. Well, Gabe, as we uh, talk about uh, the tension that the culture puts us under, the other element that's kind of going on in the midst of this is that is we really have two generations that respond to these realities somewhat differently. Um, and that produces not only a different set of response from different age groups, but it also produces some conversational static, if I can say it that yeah. way, between an older generation and a younger generation that handle these areas differently. Um, how do we work through through that part of the reality that we're talking about?
2: Yeah, it's so important that generations can relate, and yet I think in every generation we find parents and kids just not knowing how to talk to one another. Right, mm-hmm. that's not a new phenomena, but I do think uh, work can be done and care can be given within the Christian community for us to be really careful. Um, to choose to trust a little bit more than we do doubt. I do find with um, some of the older generation, there's a, there's a constant, there's a fear going on that we're losing the next generation. And some of that's grounded. I mean, it's statistically proven out. We are losing many in the next generation. But that fear can start to drive us um, to not want to learn, to not want to engage the next generation, or mm-hmm. to listen to some of their thoughts and ideas. And I think of the relationship I had with uh, the late Chuck Colson, where that was a big part of our relationship the last decade of his life, was as in his seventies, he was still asking me, who was in my early thirties, like what are you seeing out there? What's happening in the church? How do you respond to this particular topic or issue? And we had a mutual mutual relationship between, you know, separated by really three generations. We had this mutual conversation going on where I was learning from him, and he was asking me questions, and he, he I don't know that he really learned anything from me. I think he just nodded his head a few times and acted like it. But he, he would listen and seek to understand. And I think between parents and children, we're dealing with a similar thing. We've got to t- take a step back. I know we think we have all the answers and and listen to the next generation. There's a lot we can learn from them because they're not coming from a place of fear. you got to understand they've grown up. The air they're breathing right now has been some of these social rules that I've laid out. And so it's kind of built in. So they're not fearful of it at all. They're used to pluralism. They're Mm -hmm. used to growing up in an environment where Christians did not have a dominant point of view in the world. They've always been, and Christians have been a little bit more of a minority point of view. So we can learn a lot from somebody who's, joyful and hopeful even in that circumstance, whereas I think sometimes the old generation sort of remembers the good old days and says, man, I wish it was like that, and since it's not, I've got a lot of fear about where this is going.
1: Yeah, and uh, I think that another danger older generation can sometimes do is to say, "Well, the way I deal with this is to just kind of plant my flag and stand firm." Right. (laughs) And and in the midst of planting the flag and standing firm, you're actually violating some of the rules that we Mm -hmm. talked about, which which means, and this is, I think, this is the subtle part of this. Which means that in the midst of very well-intentioned communication, where you're mm-hmm. trying to challenge someone about where they are in in life, you actually never get heard. Right. Um, you n- not only do you never get heard, you don't have a chance of getting heard, and you and you're actually building a wall. The more you respond, whereas if you walk in from a different angle, the opportunity exists to build some empathy and yeah. sympathy and connection, and then. When you when you challenge you challenge with the credibility of having built a relationship that, that works you've suggested this with patience but what else what else would you suggest in terms of how to walk into these kinds of spaces and thinking about walking into these kinds of well, spaces
2: well I think um, I remember a conversation I had with my father who uh, um, grew up I grew up Baptist, and and that was their background, and and the story we were talking about in the earlier episode of the half-story gospel and the full-story gospel, Mm -hmm. and him having concerns about some of what I was talking about, that, that sounded liberal, because we were talking about that God wants to renew the world and that there's work to be done in this world um, to make things new and to make things better to advance the common good. You know, these are all flashing red flag signals that this is a liberal point of view. Mm-hmm. And in having that conversation, what was so helpful was instead of me being frustrated about his perspective was, was having a sensitivity to it, to mm-hmm. say, actually, everything that I'm talking about and writing about right now doesn't replace how I was raised Mm -hmm. or the fact that the fall redemption story is true Mm -hmm. and that that's how I became a Christian and came to know Jesus. Um, I feel like what this conversation is broadening our responsibility as Christians It's saying yes, not only do we have to proclaim the good news and do evangelism, we have about 10 other responsibilities we need to be doing as it relates to following Christ in the world. And and having a sensitivity to that conversation allowed my father to see some of what I was talking about without it being this offensive clash. But I do think, Daryl, you're right, language has become a huge problem for all of us, Mm -hmm. Um, even in writing this book, The Next Christians. Mm -hmm. One of the things I was trying to do was help parents understand their 20-something children and have a conversation that was rooted in this idea of the gospel, but they were approaching differently. So one of the chapters is called, you know, being provoked instead of offended. Mm -hmm. Well, lots of the older generation would be offended sometimes at the types of sin or corruption or or even parts of town that that they weren't going to go to because it represented a lack of holiness. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, the next generation sees those places, and they feel called by God to actually go into them, to Mm -hmm. be provoked to engage some of these spaces that otherwise felt very off limits to Christians, and by doing so... put themselves in positions to do real ministry to people who really need it. Um, And yet an older generation sometimes looks at that and goes, wait, you shouldn't be doing that. You shouldn't be involved there. And so the religion side um, can sometimes um, hold back the next generation who's saying, no, I just practically want to love people. I want to do justice. I want to live out what I see the teachings of Jesus tell me to do without all of these rules and parameters you keep trying to put around me.
1: Yeah and, and and it really does you know the tension that people feel is a tension between what I like to call sacred space that people want to create for themselves, their families, their communities, and the extension of the hand of the gospel, which basically says the only way you get to a whole life is to come into this sacred space. But if you build walls around that sacred space so high, you never extend that hand out yeah. to the person who you're 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 trying to reach. I, I like to think about it when when I'm in a conversation with a younger person, we're kind of taking on the roles of the different ages here, is I understand when I talk to you, I've worked with young people all my life, I've been in the seminary here for 34 years, and and I know they're highly motivated and have the same gospel commitment I do. I know we share that. Mm-hmm. And so out of that builds a desire to listen and hear how they are seeing things, because I know their goal isn't to undermine what I believe in. Mm-hmm. Their real goal is to try and further what I believe in. Now, they yeah. may do it a different way. but. Part of that is, hey, you know, I'm here to. To listen and hear. Yeah. Your experience isn't my experience. Uh, your age group does react to things differently than I do. I'm all ears.
2: Yeah. Um, and Daryl, that's an incredible model for yeah. any listeners who are struggling with this. I mm-hmm. think your approach of choosing to trust, mm-hmm. knowing occasionally there are people that probably don't agree with everything that you think theologically, but mm-hmm. that you don't start the conversation there. You start with, what can I learn from you? What do you What do we thinking? have in common? Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's not only good practice within the church, we're going to find it essential practice in the world today Mm -hmm. where people are having a very hard time knowing how to get along despite differences in opinion, religion, faith, politics, you name it. What a great way for Christians to be the ones that know how to model this, to Mm -hmm. know how to listen to others, to try to find common ground. Uh, and, and really point the way forward, I think, that in a way our culture is kind of begging for it and mm-hmm. there's no real leadership there. You know,
1: I think of two passages that come to mind. They both come out of the exilic experience of the Old Testament. Uh, one of them is a very famous passage coming out of Jeremiah in which, which the urging is, you know, to basically serve the city, to, mm-hmm. to work for the prosperity of the city. And he's not talking about Jerusalem. You know, he's talking about Babylon. Right. So, uh, so you go. Well, you know, you wouldn't exactly hang up Babylon as the biblical model of a way a city ought to be, Mm -hmm. and yet Mm -hmm. the exhortation to these exiles is participate in that culture. Participate in the family, and the life of the city, and do it in a way that benefits the city. Try and be a contributor to what's going on rather than a spectator who's simply shaking their finger at the culture. Yes. That's picture number one. Picture number two is actually the figure of Daniel himself, you know, who worked in the midst of the Babylonian government. Now I suspect there were things going on in that government that Daniel would go, Probably not the best, most biblical thing to be doing, and yet at the same time, he was trying to participate as someone who brought something positive Mm -hmm. to what was going on, as opposed to simply leaving it leaving it alone and and in many ways letting it just deteriorate on its own terms.
2: Yes, I I think that's all part of this mission.